Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. As always, I am entertainment journalist Drew Taylor, joined by filmmaker Charles Hood. Charles, how you doing? I am doing fantastic. I am so excited about this interview we've got today. We've been waiting to do this for a long time. Many, many moons. Yes, we are talking to Simon Pegg, a.k.a. Benji. The guy who used to be behind the computer and now he's out in the field solving crimes and... (laughs) Looking for bad guys, right? Is, is he a crime solver? <laughs> we got to get a Benji spinoff show where he's solving crimes <laughs> on the side. Yeah, just like you know. a CSI type. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, these are, these are, these are crimes. I mean, no, they're hunting villains, right? People yes. are committing crimes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. You're right. Okay. You're right. Yeah, well, so anyway, we, we talked to, to Simon Pegg. This was before he saw Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. This is before we saw Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So it's before we went to Rome and we had that amazing time. This was before. we were, It was a more innocent time before that. It was. We were young. Yeah. yeah. And th- so this is a, a dive back into the character of Benji and his whole history going back to MI3 through Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout. And uh, yeah, we got more at the end of the episode to dig into the Dead Reckoning Part One, but we'll we'll come back to that later. And if you want to watch these movies again, if you want to, you know, really trace the history of Benji, I'm going to suggest to everybody, Charles, if you don't mind. Oh, I'm I'm open to suggestions. Let's hear it. You're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think everybody should check these movies out. All six Mission Impossible movies are available right now on Paramount Plus. So go watch them before you watch Dead Reckoning Part One. It'll, it's a nice refresher. You don't have to. But it's it's uh, it'll enrich the experience, let's say, and yes, it'll enrich absolutely. the experience of listening to this interview. So let's let's get into it. Well, and just quickly for context, I uh, just wanted to say, as we talked to Simon Pegg about this topic, originally in Ghost Protocol, the character of Julia was dead when they were putting that script together, that movie together, and it was in the process of production that they they changed that a little bit. That was Michelle Monaghan's character. So just wanted to set that up for people who didn't know that already. That's all. Okay, great. Charles, thanks for that tidbit. And let's get into the interview. First of all, thank you for coming on the show. This is the the new show, Simon. This is the official Mission Impossible podcast now. I heard. Yeah. That's very cool. So yeah, we're we're just so happy to have you here. Let's let's start with the beginning because the word word on the street is that 
the character Benji that you played in three was written for another comedian. I think we can say that. Maybe Ricky Gervais. I don't know if this is true. I've never. Oh, you don't know if this is true. Okay, well, tell us. I think JJ had wanted Ricky to play a part in the Berlin sequence. Oh. I think maybe Eddie Marzan's part. It wasn't Benji though. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's nice to put that uh, that I'm just you know I picked up one of Ricky Gervais's castoffs. Nice to put that. In <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's not a bad gig. I would I would be happy to do that. But so yeah, how did you get involved? Um, I was writing Hot Fuzz with Edgar Wright, and um, we were working in our office in uh, in Fitzrovia in London. And the call came down that J.J. Abrams was on the line, and I didn't. I mean, he knew J.J. sort of from Alias, obviously, and uh, Lost wasn't out yet because he once he'd sort of like pitched me the movie he said oh i've got a new show coming out called lost i'll send it to you and he sent me the entire first season of lost on individual dvds in a in a box which i watched before it aired just as a sort of like have a look at my stuff kind of thing and um i hadn't seen felicity and i'd only seen a couple of episodes of lost um of uh, alias but um yeah he just called and he said he'd seen me at the saturn awards edgar and i had been at the saturn awards in la to pick up something for Shaun of the dead and he'd wanted to come over and say hello but for whatever reason he, he he didn't get the chance and um yeah he just sort of literally in jj's kind of way just sort of said hey do you want to come and be in mission impossible 3 and i'd actually already auditioned here's the story i'd already auditioned for mission impossible 3 in a completely different incarnation uh joe carnahan was developing a script and um I did a reading for a character. I can't remember who it was. It was something to do with a helicopter. It was. A, it wasn't. It wasn't JJ's script. It was a completely different script. Obviously, eventually, you know, they moved on from that. But um, so I'd kind of already had a go at it, and then said in an interview with the Sun or something in the UK that I wasn't going to run off and do Mission Impossible Three because, you know, in the UK they sort of see sometimes they see going to Hollywood, whatever that means, as, as a sort of a, a betrayal in some way. There's like a kind of a, oh, you're going to just go off and forget all about good old blighty. And, I, and I'd sort of <laughs> said no, but partly it, it, out of bitterness because I hadn't got the part in this Mission Impossible 3 that I'd auditioned for. And then, you know, JJ just sort of said, oh, come, why don't you just come to LA and, and play this character? And I, of course, just said, okay. <laughs> I remember just sort of like being a bit shocked and... Uh, and I'd see, obviously, I knew I'd, I'd seen both the previous Mission Impossibles at the cinema. And so I was very aware of the films, and that was it. And then next thing I knew, I was flying off to LA to, to do my first stint as Benji. Wow. Okay. We have to talk about that earlier script because Charles and I are obviously obsessed with it. Was this the Frank Darabont version of the script? Do you remember? Yeah, I think it might have been Frank, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That that movie came pretty close to shooting. They 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 had sets built, I believe, and they were like ready to go. Yeah, well, they were casting it. You know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know the story of it. I don't know what happened and why. You know, I presume it's similar to Star Trek in a way. Like when I when I was brought in to write the third Star Trek film with Doug Jung, they had a script that was in development and they built sets. And you know, sometimes things just come to a point of creative kind of indecision and and things move on to different things and thank goodness they did <laughs> were you just sort of in a room by yourself kind of like vamping on that 
that first one because you really are sort of segregated from from the rest of the the team. What was that experience like? Other other than your first scene, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that was I mean, you know, in those days that I guess in that movie there's this idea that there was some kind of um sort of Langley for the IMF, you know, like a sort of centralized uh, IMF headquarters where there was, you know, computers and other people and workers. I think that idea is sort of kind of evolved away from that now to something a little bit more solitary. But um, I got to set and then suddenly Tom and Ving came out and sort of said, hi, here we go. Action. And um, and I did. I don't think I did a single take of that speech, the whole anti-God thing that I managed to get through because I just started to melt down, you know, because the pressure was so intense, even though JJ, Tom, couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been more welcoming. You know, Tom did his thing where he just makes you feel like the most important person in the room and 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 how how delighted he was I was there. And it was all a bit kind of overwhelming. Um, in the morning, I did enough takes to get it all in so they could put, get it, put it together in the edit so it looked like I got it right, <laughs> which I never did. <laughs> and then the afternoon was slightly more relaxed because it was just me Benji speaking to Ethan in Shanghai. So that was just me and JJ and the crew and me sort of running around. And I was a little more loosened up by then and it wasn't so difficult. But then, and then the afternoon I shot the stuff with the, what has now become Benji's sort of go-to function in Mission Impossible, which is to be GPS for Ethan. You know, the amount of times I say go left, go right in these films, fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I came back and that, that was it. I did one day and then I came, but they brought me back. Uh, about four or five weeks later, and we shot another scene in the IMF at the end, which ended up being a sort of montage at the end of the film when you see us all happy and we meet uh, Michelle Monaghan, we meet Julia, she comes to the IMF. And there was actually a scene when uh, we had dialogue and stuff, but they they edited that down into a kind of a, a sort of wordless montage in the end. So all in all, I did two, I did two days on Mission Impossible 3. That was my first, uh, that was my first outing. Wow. And you've stuck around for... Like you said, 16 years at this point. Yeah. And then however many years later, what would have been? It would have been 2000 and we did that in 2006. So two or three years later, I got another call from JJ just saying, hey, how how would you feel if Benji became an agent? And um, it was another one of those questions which just felt rhetorical in that it was, of course. course. And that was the beginning of uh, Ghost Protocol. We'll be back with more from Simon Pegg after the break. So talk to us about Ghost Protocol. It seems like you and and Bird's sensibilities go very well together. And seeing you in the field was just such a thrill. What was that whole experience like? Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, it was, you know, that I went from doing two days to doing however many months on that film you know we went to uh prague at first and then uh then dubai and then we went into vancouver for the remains we did a month in prague we did a month in dubai and then i think three months in vancouver it was brilliant you know because benji was a field agent i had to kind of get in a bit of shape i was quite doughy at the time and tom said you know you're going to be an agent you got to sort of like look like an agent so (laughs) Uh, I started training in Prague. It's really funny, actually. When you watch Ghost Protocol, next time you watch it, 
there's an edit from the point when Ethan and Benji are walking across Red Square and he, and Benji's getting all excited about working with him. And then it cuts inside the Kremlin. I lose 20 pounds in a single edit. I go, <laughs> I've become almost skeletal. Um, but it was fantastic because it, it just gave me such a focus to kind of like, I don't know, I had the best time in Prague. I was sort of training and learning to fight and, um, and then you know we shot that uh, we shot all the exteriors for for Russia, and uh, and then obviously to Dubai, which was insane because that was the that was the Burj Khalifa stunt, you know, which we were all there for. And then settling into um, into Vancouver for all the interiors, it was just such a great adventure. And I felt obviously, you know, it was an enormous privilege to suddenly be a, a part of the team, you know, and uh, meeting Jeremy and and Paula and. Uh, and just striking up a, a friendship with Tom and and becoming part of the kind of, you know, the Mission Impossible. Felt like being out there in the field just made me feel a lot more part of it, really. Any good stories from watching Tom hang outside the, uh, the, the Burj Khalifa? <laughs> I remember going up there, you know, just to see, just to look. And I, I sort of walked in and there was just this hive of quiet industry. All these stunt guys with pulleys, everyone was like sat on the floor braced. And it was completely silent. Everyone was really concentrating. And then I kind of crept towards the edge and I looked at, and Tom was just hanging there with this massive shit-eating grin on his face, <laughs> like, <laughs> like having the most fun. Like in the room itself, it was just like, everybody was so serious and clearly just utterly petrified that something was going to go wrong. And then you just get outside and there's Cruz just having the absolute time of his life. And um, it was just brilliant. And I remember being at the, premiere in sydney when we finally when it finally came out and um and sitting in, in an audience watching it with an audience and feeling that sense of vertigo as as bird's sort of camera comes out looking down and I, it just it was palpable the 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 sense of wonder in the crowd and i always kind of i mean tom will tell you that from the very beginning it's always been about the stunts are real that's our mantra and he has always done his stunts but I think that moment was the true realization that, oh my God, this gives the film something that no other films have that don't have this degree of practical application. You know, that there is a frisson of sheer energy that, that the audience derive from knowing that this is happening because you can do anything with CGI and CGI is a fantastic tool. It's opened so many doors for us uh, in movies and television, but it is an effect and there is always part of your brain, no matter what you're seeing, if you know that it's CG, you know, it's not really happening. So you can wonder at the aesthetics and you can wonder at the imagination, but the sense of danger isn't really there. But I think for Tom, it was like, okay, I, this is, this is how it's got to be now in order to distinguish mission impossible from all the other kind of action franchises out there. This is what's going to be the thing that makes people truly excited you know the idea that he's doing this this is actually happening you know and that's when obviously next rogue nation he was hanging off a plane and it's gone it's got crazier and crazier well before we go on to rogue nation we have we're obsessed with one element of ghost protocol that we have to ask you about which was the abandoned snow sequence from the beginning yeah of the movie. do you remember this i do yeah did you train for it or anything? There's a whole storyboarded sequence we've seen where you're on a snowmobile. That's your character's introduction, I think, is like flying in on a snowmobile and landing. And then it's, it's you and Paula Patton, I think, are 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, being chased by by some bad guys who have a missile launcher, and then the missile launcher ends up getting shot up into the. You guys are over over like a frozen lake, and then that ends up kind of they end up sort of bombing themselves and going underwater or something like that. Yeah, it was like the cold open for the movie, wasn't it? it was that? Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I you know, it's funny. I've got used to having participated in these movies for sixteen years. Like, obviously, three. I had my pages. That was it. Four. Ghost Protocol. There was a script, but. It's not what we filmed in the end, you know, because then Tom brought in McHugh and everything changed. I, I mean, Benji had this amazing sequence at the end. You think Benji's been killed. There's a, there, You see Benji get shot dead and he's lying on the floor, but you find out that it's not Benji at all. It's a, it's a goon with a Benji mask on and Benji comes swinging in with a machine gun and he shoots all these people. And I remember reading that script and thinking, oh, this is great. I love it. Just because it was be- it was the chance for me to do something really fun, it didn't really track with who Benji was. Benji had been a you know a sort of slobby analyst about a year ago in Mission Time, and then suddenly he was like this sort of superhero. And I think you know McHugh came in and he started to kind of rewrite, and he could see that I was pissed that I my bit had been cut. You know, I remember we were sitting on the bed together in the in the Burj Khalifa set. We were chatting about stuff, and I. I remember having this long conversation with him. We talked about the fact that it was Chris's idea to not have Julia be dead. The, initially in the script, Julia was dead. And I, I can't, when I read that, I just thought that's just like, you know, that's like refrigerating a female character. And also it reminded me of Aliens where you, you know, you watch Aliens and it's amazing. Then you watch Alien 3 and Newton Hicks are killed in the first minute. And it makes everything that they go through in Aliens kind of pointless because you just know, oh, well, they're just going to die. So what's the point of Ripley going back for her and doing all this stuff? It kind of retroactively spoils the previous film. And I and we were talking about that, that example and saying that I'm really glad that Julia's alive and the whole thing is a kind of subterfuge to keep her safe and all this kind of stuff. It felt much more unexpected and less sort of reactionary than just killing a character you didn't know anything to do. You didn't know what to do with, you know. And then he said, Simon, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I just wanted to swing in on with the machine gun and kill all the guys. And, and he said, I, had, I, even, I even had a... I even had a, a dummy made of me. I went in and I was cast for a dummy to have my sort of cadaver lying on the set. And and JJ kept it a bad robot. It's still there, actually, for years. He used to send me pictures of them doing rude things to it. Uh, it's in like a glass case now. And I, and, and McHugh said to me, "What? so what do, you, what, do you, what do you want? You know, what is it that you want? What are you missing? I said, I just, I just want Benji to do something cool. And he said, is that it? And I went, yeah, you know, I just want to do something cool. And he said that that's when he wrote the, the, the moment when I shoot uh Wistrom with the with the revolver and there's that big crack there's a big sort of slow tracking on me and I'm standing there looking cool with a gun yeah and um that felt much more in keeping with who Benji was at this point you know that was the first time he'd you know probably the first time he'd uh he'd shot anybody and um it felt more in keeping with the growth of the character but yeah it's interesting all that stuff the snow the, there were lots of things that went and for the better I can tell you well what what was your reaction when you I guess saw Rogue Nation coming together and you realized what a kind of two-hander it was with you and Cruz. I was delighted, obviously. Um, it was really, I remember having, every time we do a mission movie, McHugh takes me out to dinner and we he tells me the story, uh, which ends up being nothing like what we end up shooting. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's kind of his initial ideas kind of thing. And a lot of, of course, m- most of it gets in, but... Uh, yeah, it was great, and all the all the stuff in the car, you know, the stuff in the car in Casablanca, and the the sort of 
you know, Ethan and Benji out on their own kind of stuff was were really nice. You know, it was um it's always fun to play him just because every film he grows a little bit and and he he changes and uh he takes on the experiences of what's gone before. And um, you know, to get to do all that stuff when he kind of stands up to Ethan a little bit and then to be out in uh out in Casablanca and and you know, being his basically his wingman, that was just uh it was so much fun. Do you have any fun stories of being with with Cruz one on one, were you trying to absorb his life energy and just kind of? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a story I've told before. It's quite, but I, I, it deserves to be on the pod. We were shooting in, um, we were shooting the car chase in Casablanca, and um, it was oh my god! I, I, I've never. We've got a name for it now. We call it a Casablanca lockdown. If you're in a public space and you can't control it. Like when you're shooting, you know, you, you, when you can't control the the public and stuff, we call it a Casablanca lockdown because that's what it's. It, it, Casablanca was almost impossible to control because all the security we hired told all their families that Tom Cruise was coming <laughs> down, <laughs> so they all came down, and so we do our very best to kind of keep everybody off the streets, and then obviously we go herring around in this BMW. And then afterwards, everyone would just come rushing onto the onto the where we've been shooting and want to meet Tom. And we drove, but I remember we drove back one one night to to base. And Tom said, "Come in my car," because I would get back a bit quicker. And we were driving through this throng of Moroccan guys, all going Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, and like banging on the car. And we were going like one mile an hour. I mean, I swear to God, there must have been a thousand people all going Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. And he was just looking at me, laughing. And uh, I, I just remember thinking. Hell, man, your life, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just insane. But he, he was, he's a mischief maker, Tom. Like, and also always on, when it's not his coverage, he's always, you know, he's giggles. And he, he, and he does it with me because he knows that, you know, I do it too. But um, we, we were in this car and it was warm, but I was very warm. I, 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 can't, I was having to drink lots of water and, and, and kind of like try and stay hydrated and stuff. And Tom was being really good about making sure that I was okay. And it turned out that he was switching on my seat heater at the beginning of tapes <laughs> so that my seat would heat up and I would just become un- unusually warm. And I didn't notice this for an entire day. And all the time he's kind of, you know, calling to, to the PAs and stuff. Going, can, some, can we bring Simon some water, please? Like he's keeping me alive, basically, like that guy in Seven. And eventually we're doing this, we're doing a take and I see him do it. And he sees me see him do it. And the look on his face is like a kid that's being caught stealing peanut butter or something. (laughs) (laughs) So then this became like a war. So like we'd be doing in the middle of some of those car chase moments when he's doing this incredible stunt driving, I would switch his heater on like when he wasn't looking. And this, it became this tip for tap kind of like battle all through the filming of that sequence to the point where I eventually, he went to the bathroom when I got one of the PAs over and I said, hey, uh, give me some black tape. And I cut this tiny slither of black tape and I put it over the lights on his seat heater so he couldn't tell if it was on or not. And then I just switched it on. <laughs> <laughs> and then we kept, and I, we were doing the take and he kept looking down to see if he could see the lights because I could see he was getting hot, but he couldn't see the lights. And then eventually I told him when he had to give me, you know, he, he fist bumped me for that. Because I kind of checkmated him in the battle of the seat eaters, and that's when you knew your 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 continued involvement in the Mission Impossible franchise was hanging on by a very thin bit of tape. Yeah, thin thin black tape. He's kind of you know he's incredibly safety conscious, 
about that stuff. He's not reckless. You know, it wasn't like we were messing around in the key moments because he would, you know, we'd go through like a little safety briefing before we took off. When we did the steps, you know, we'd go through this whole thing about not putting your hand outside the window if we rolled and it's terrifying. But he's always very, very plucky around us, which is hilarious considering the stuff he does. But he's always very, he's very motherly around us about keeping us safe and stuff. He came on set when we were shooting a fight scene in Rogue Nation and I get thrown against the wall. And he was sort of, you know, he was kind of like my mum watching, going, oh, no, don't. Does he have to do that? <laughs> Mate, I just watched you hang <laughs> off a plane. What are you telling me I can't get thrown against a foam wall? <laughs> we'll be back with more from Simon Pegg after the break. I know we're running out of time, but we got to talk about Fallout. Obviously, well, what was it, what was it coming like coming back to work with McHugh as a director? This was the first time you had had the same director twice on one of these movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I I, I often you know obviously Brad Bird is very much the director of uh, of Ghost Protocol, and it's very much a Brad Bird movie, but. Because McHugh was on set in that film, it already felt when we did Rogue Nation, I, I, I already felt like uh, McHugh was a friend and, 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 and he knew me and what I could do because he'd written for me. And so it was a really fun idea because they worked so well together, those two. They were, they were a real sort of double act creatively and uh, they have such kind of um, synchronicity. I was excited to work with McCugan. I also think he is an absolutely brilliant director. He has such a kind of incredible technical understanding of the art, and uh, and he himself professes to be a, a you know a continual student of film. And um, the idea of actually getting to to do it again, you know, rather than start from scratch, it's a, it's it's very interesting because obviously that one of the defining thing about the original. The back half of Mission Impossible is this kind of eclectic series of directors in, you know, De Palma and Wu and JJ and then Brad and then Chris. And then suddenly we're going into a, a second phase when it's just Chris. But what that enables is a greater sense of continuity and consistency, I think. And for us as actors to not have to go back and meet a new director and understand their way of working, it just meant we could hit the ground running. And so with Fallout, we did exactly the same thing. We, he took me out for sushi maybe sushi was this one anyway i can't remember what the food was but it was a dinner <laughs> and uh and he told me all about it and i and i kind of was immediately excited because i know McHugh, i love him you know i knew it was going to be rebecca and Ving again it's it just everything was in place for it to be an absolute sort of thrill it was again another exercise in sort of laying the track in front of the train which is how i always describe McHugh's sort of work method, which is that like that scene from The Wrong Trousers when Gromit the dog is just, he's riding on the back of a train and he's laying the track in front of the train as it's going. That's how these movies are often, they feel like they're made. And whereas we had about 33 pages of uh, script, I think, for Rogue, no, no, we had a full script for Rogue Nation, but then it changed and changed. We had 33 pages of script for Fallout with the promise of more coming, obviously, as we shot. And then it kind of went, in a sort of, um, you know, not a make it up as you go along way, because obviously the big set pieces are meticulously planned, but the, the connective tissue, the, the minutia of the narrative and stuff that kind of grows around 
the process. So McHugh's kind of figuring it out as he goes. It's another version of his problem solving. Rather than solving a, a script, he's solving a script which isn't there. And kind of, I'll ask him sometimes, what happens? Why does, why do we do this? Or what happens? And he's like, I don't know. And he always <laughs> figures it out. There's never, a, I never, I never fear that he's not going to do it. He always figures it out. But there are times, even now for uh, Dead Reckoning Part Two, I'm like, so what's happening in that part of the story? <laughs> I don't know. It's so <laughs> annoying sometimes. <laughs> I, it's just maddening. All the new kids on on Dead Reckoning Part One, like Palm and Haley and Shay, Tarzan, Isai, all those guys, they're all coming to me as the kind of, you know, the veteran to say, what's happening? What's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. Why is it? Why do you think I would know? <laughs> but then, for, yeah, Fallout was was much more sort of, I hate to say winging it because it, it sounds irresponsible. It's just a particular way of working that really suits Tom and McHugh because it gives them the creative bandwidth to to pivot and adjust and kind of like, you know, not be locked into anything and uh, and have the story sort of grow almost organically as we're making it. And it it works, you know. That's the annoying thing. If the, if we got to the end of Rogue Nation and it had been a disaster, and don't forget there was actually a script for Rogue Nation, even though we we went off book and it changed a lot, then uh, they wouldn't have said, "Oh, you can do that again." But it did work, and then we did it for Fallout, and then it really worked. So for Dead Reckoning's Part One and Two, it's been there was never a script. You know, we get our dialogue in the mornings or a few days before. There is a story breakdown. There are obviously extremely well thought out uh, set pieces, which they usually know where they're going in the story. The plane stunt in Rogue Nation, when we shot that, we didn't know if it was the end of the film or if it was the beginning of the film or it was like the middle. It was kind of, it was just something we were shooting and maybe it's the finale. It could have been, but in the end, they just threw it away at the beginning, and which I think was the best thing to do because it just it sets out the stall for the movie in such a sort of uh, dynamic way. But yeah, Fallout was a lot of fun. As an actor, are you just sort of trusting the process? I mean, I I imagine there is some level of anxiousness in terms of like how this is all going to fit together, how you're going to come across. I don't know. I would see, I would feel very kind of like worried in some respects. Yeah. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) A level of anxiousness. I laughed at the phrase level of anxiousness because it felt inadequate to describe exactly exactly how I feel sometimes. I never, ever feel unsafe. This is something that that must be stressed is that I I feel totally secure in the knowledge that they'll they'll figure it out. So I never feel like uh, the anxiousness just comes from it's more of a frustration. I just want to know. I want to know what's going to happen sometimes it's it can be frustrating as an actor because you're not sure where you've come from so i'm the first thing i shot for dead reckoning was in venice and i'm i got to venice i learned how to ride drive a boat and then that evening i was driving the boat through the canals of venice saying things like ethan go over there and McHugh was just sat at the front of the boat just throwing lines at me which i just had to repeat and say not knowing where it was going to go or why i was telling ethan these things it was just, let's get this. Let's get Benji guiding Ethan through Venice while he's on a boat. And I, I didn't know where I'd come from. I didn't know where I boarded the boat. I didn't know why we were in Venice. I didn't know what the <laughs> f- was going on, why I was wearing a suit. I just knew I had to do this stuff. And I had to trust the process. And of course, you know, it's part of a brilliantly, tightly wound, incredibly tense, exciting sequence. But I was doing ADR for today, funnily enough. 
and it always works out in the end. That's what you have to trust that it that everything will be okay. And it's so it's McEwen says like mission often it's like the stuff that's going on on screen will often mirror the stuff that's going on in real life. So if there's a scene that's incredibly tense on the screen, it's probably really tense in the studio. When we shot the stuff, when um, Solomon Lane hangs Benji and uh, he's fighting with Ilsa and we've got to defuse the bomb, it was like 1.15 in the morning and we were going into overtime and the crew were really fucking tired and everybody was nervous, was were frayed. And so... We were as tense defusing that fake nuclear bomb as we would have been if we'd defused <laughs> <laughs> nuclear bomb. Because, you know, it was just it was just so stressful. And sometimes that kind of helps the moment, you know. That's that's McHugh's feeling is that, you know, art and life sometimes need to mirror each other for it to kind of really really sing. Well, I know we will we will be talking to you soon in a few weeks, hopefully, after we see the movie, but like how is part one looking? How what can you te- tease something? Tell us what the vibe is. Tell us what how you are reacting to these initial cuts. Tell us tell us something. Well, I don't see. I actually don't see it until I like. I I make a point really. I don't really want to. If I if I if like if I'm making a movie with Edgar or something, then I'm there for the cuts because you know I'm a writer and all that stuff. I I like to wait until everything's finished and you know i could i could watch an early cut or a friends and family screening but what i really want to see is the finished film fully dubbed graded lawn's uh score and just just soak it all up i watched the opening credit sequence today which was fantastic and and in the true style of mission impossible that great sort of you know the preview thing and uh that was really brilliant it's gonna be I mean, you saw the trailer. It, it, it's it's going to be extraordinary. And the the great thing about McHugh's continued involvement in this is that because he he's never starting again, he's always carrying on from where he just left off. So it can't really reset. It has to kind of to sort of ratchet up more. And you know, he said to me that there are things when we were shooting some of eight the other the, the other, a couple of months ago. He said, there are things that I know now that I would have done differently at the beginning of shooting seven. You know, he's kind of, he's so, so evolving as a filmmaker. And the fact that him and Tom will never sit back on their laurels and just do something again, they'll always just try and up the ante. Every time we do one of these films, right back to, to Ghost Protocol, you get the question, oh, well, what's next? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if we can top it. And we always do. It's kind of incredible how, how far they push things. This one, I mean, you know, being up there on the on the cliff with Tom when he did that motorcycle stunt, that was right back in September 2020. And me and Tarzan and Palm and Haley, we were all up there just to see it, you know, just to be there when it happened. And that was just, I mean, Christ. Waiting for waiting to hear good canopy was like some of the longest seconds I've ever experienced. He just sort of like because we'd see him go off the ramp and then he'd disappear. And then there'd just be this big pause. Good canopy. And everyone would go, oh, f- hell, thank you, God. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. So, so these films are operating on an upward curve. And, and I think that is not going to in any way deviate uh, with these next two. Wow. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll ask you to rank the movies after you've seen seven. But <laughs> okay, yeah. there's an equally important ranking that we always do on the show that we are going to forcibly insert into this new version of the show, which is <laughs> ranking Tom Cruise's hairstyles. 
Oh wow! From the mission movies only. From the mission movies only. Yeah, we can't we can't get into interview with a vampire. We could just do a whole show on his hair. Of course, that. yeah. But I mean, are you a long hair guy? Are you a short hair guy? Where do you kind of land? And yeah, give us your rankings. I kind of like he's done, he's gone for a sort of in eight that it's sort of in betweeny. Yeah, I kind of like I kind of like short hair. So is it is like one three? Fallout, Dead Reckoning Part One. I mean, what what's the? Yeah, although I do like I do like Ghost Protocol hair. Well, that's a little longer, right? Yeah, I know, I know. Maybe I'm just a little <laughs> bit of. Maybe I'm uh, uh, by hair by hairy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like seven and eight we get kind of the best of both worlds because it seems to be pretty short in seven and then a little longer in eight. Yeah, it's like it grows out a little bit. I look at my yeah. I have my, my hair in Ghost Protocol is ridiculous because I come off. I think I was just off half as I had like blonde hair, it just it like shaved or uh, anyway. <laughs> but uh, you you almost feel an obligation to have some a slightly different hairstyle every film, and that's actually gone. Like my hair for eight is slightly different to my hair. My hair for seven is like lockdown hair because I hadn't <laughs> cut it for ages, and then it's just it was so unmanageable. My hair's nowhere near as good as Tom's, so it's just this weird kind of shaggy mess. No, nobody's hair is as good as Tom's. I mean, that's true. That's, you know, when we met him on set, we had to we had to tell him how good his hair looked. I think that's when he realized who we were, because all we do yes. is talk about his hair. <laughs> so yeah. Well, Simon, thank you so much for coming on. We will talk to you soon. I hope. No, my pleasure, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, yeah, please keep in touch. Thank you so much. We love Simon Pegg and we thank him for his time, but we weren't done with him just yet. We weren't done. No, we did talk to him more after he saw the movie in Rome and after we saw the movie in Rome. But just quickly, just to just to do a little little tiny debrief on that. It's amazing to hear that Simon auditioned for Joe Carnahan's version of Mission Impossible 3 that was written by Frank Darabont. Yes. That is crazy. We also love that we got to debunk <laughs> an old internet rumor, which is that his role was originally meant for Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Which I think people just leapt to that assumption maybe because Ricky Gervais was on Alias, uh, which of course was JJ's television show. But right. yeah. Uh, that was great to hear. But I guess, yeah, it was, there was a different part for Ricky, which is interesting to hear about. Yeah, and and also I just love Simon Pegg describing the making of these movies as being like Wallace and Gromit with the train, you know, putting the train tracks down in front of the train. <laughs> yes, yes, so good. <laughs> so great, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, let's let's get into our, our, our conversation we had with Simon in Rome as part of the junket. This has very minor spoilers for Dead Reckoning Part 1, but it was great to catch up to him again after we both saw the movie. Would you say that people should buy tickets to Dead Reckoning Part 1 which is in theaters right now or what do you I would I would recommend it. Yeah, don't you think? It's playing now exclusively in theaters. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yes, yeah, see it in the biggest screen possible and the loudest theater oh, possible. Yes. IMAX, Dolby, what there's there's all kinds of D-box, ScreenX, so many different I, I can't wait to see it in all the formats. You know, we're obsessed with all of yes. them. Yes. <laughs> yes, we will see it in every every format available, but it's in theaters right now, so get your tickets and go see that then and Listen, after you see it or before you see it, listen to this interview because Simon Pegg, as always, a total gem. Let's get into it. So how did McHugh pitch 
Benji's arc for this movie? And did it actually <laughs> remain in the final version? Benji's arc was very much about the fallout from fallout, really. It was about what he'd been through, how that had affected him, affected him as a person. You know, Benji's kind of evolved since he was like a, a little puppyish lab tech through to being a wet-behind-the-ears field agent to being who he is now, which is a kind of veteran, you know. And so we wanted to kind of get that that feeling across that he's uh, he's a more mature sort of, you know, legacy legacy member of the team now, you know. And you and Ving are kind of uh, buddy tech guys in yeah. this one. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's I love. I mean, Ving, <laughs> Ving is just the business. You know, he's so fun. He's so cool. And you know, for me, obviously, he was Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction. So like, I'm constantly trying to talk to him about stuff that he's done in the past. But I love that kind of like sort of like a master Padawan thing that, uh, that <laughs> Luther and Benji have. There's a real sort of sort of uh, camaraderie they te- I mean ben, Luther main, mainly teases Benji but um, it was cool talking about the stuff that came up in episode one of the, the first Mission Impossible film the whole notion of being as uh, Luther as the net ranger you know as Phineas Freak yeah. and sort of hacker alias it was cool to I remember seeing the first one and I never knew I would be saying those words you know it's kind of cool <laughs> yeah we were pretty into that yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 a little bit uh, can you talk about the train shooting on, on the train and what that sequence was like yeah okay that i mean the whole sequence with the train is obviously you know it seamlessly come together but there's so many composite parts of it there was the live stuff in norway with the real train and the guys on top there's the stuff inside the train carriage which was an incredible set one of the most incredible sets i've ever seen uh you know the production design was so accurate and it was on a gimbal so that it moved so that when you were shooting down it you could see it kind of like it was going around corners so all the interior stuff was amazing I was supposed to shoot my uh, my sort of offline or my, my the flip side of the scene when I'm in the car yeah. uh, in Norway, but that got rained off. So I ended up shooting that on a racetrack in the UK. So all that comes together. And then the speed flying, which eventually takes place, was in Norway and in the Lake District in the UK. So it has all these constituent parts. So making it, it was like, it just felt very kind of spread out. And how is this all going to come together? And then I watched the movie the other night and it was mind-blowing to me how McHugh and Eddie Hamilton, our editor, had just beautifully assembled it together into a seamless set piece, you know. It's kind of amazing. Do you find new and interesting ways of giving Tom Cruise directions <laughs> over the phone? I try to. I try to. <laughs> what's, the, what's the method? <laughs> My favorite thing in this is when Benji kind of like sits in the passenger seat, puts the auto drive on and then just thinks, oh, shit, I better put my seatbelt on <laughs> because there's a rogue AI. Uh, maybe <laughs> it's just going to go <clears throat> straight into a wall. Um, I don't know. It's funny. I, you know, the thing about Benji is that he's constantly fearing for Ethan's life, you know, and he always wants to, to get him to where he needs to go. And in this one, he has to take him on a particularly dangerous, particularly reckless uh, route to go somewhere. So, you know, he's sort of, Tom's going up the mountain saying, am I going the right way? And Benji's having to go, yeah, yeah, sure. You, gotta get, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff, like trying to ease him into what he's about to do. But my, my first day on the movie when we did the, the motorcycle stunt was, was to give uh, Tom the offlines of, of Benji guiding him up to the top of the mountain. And, and I remember sitting up there as he does the three, the, the sort of 180 to yeah. the edge. And I was sat on a camera box behind the camera, like giving him the lines. And it was like, there was no greater way to be back in Mission Impossible. This is like, okay, here we go again. You know, we're about to do this insane thing. And he goes around to the actual edge? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were things there to make sure he didn't flip over. But yeah, he was right on the edge. And, uh, and then that afternoon, 
he did, you know, what has now become a very famous sort of stunt for the movie. And as you know, you see a lot more when you see the movie. You know, you see him in free fall. Tom Cruise makes a funny in free fall. I don't know if any actor has ever base jumped and on the way down said lines, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then that really set the tone for the whole shoot. We, we, and mainly because Tom survived and we could carry on shooting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Simon. Well, Charles, you know, I feel like we had a lot of time with Simon, but we could have used a little more time. You think we'll be talking to him again or what's what's your what's the over under there? Uh, I think I think that's a, a definite yes. I think we'll be talking to him again. There's there's plenty more to talk to Simon. I could talk to Simon Pegg about movies for hours. Yes. So uh, I think there's more to come for sure. Yeah. I can't wait uh, to get into it. Maybe we'll, we'll go with some specifics about uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1. That'll be... I'm Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't want to say too much. Okay, all right, all right, let's move on. We want to give everyone a chance to see the movie They've and got see to it see again it. and see it again yes. in theaters exclusively, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Bar 1, and then and then we'll dive into it more we'll with Simon Pegg and other people, too, yes. in the weeks and months to come, for sure. Of course, of course. Listen, if you're listening to this podcast on a podcast platform, do us a favor, like, subscribe, rate, and review... It helps us out, Charles. You know, it yes. really does. Wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you're, be it wherever Apple, you're listening be it to this. Spotify. And if you want more of us and more of the Mission Impossible franchise, we encourage you to check out our back catalog at lightthefusepodcast.com and SoundCloud. There's over 200 episodes. Oh, so yeah. if you really can't get enough, go back there. Amazing stuff back there. We've talked to so many people from Brian De Palma to Brad Bird to everybody. And uh, yeah, we've got a great episode guide there on the website with show notes and stuff for every episode. Check it out. If you get a chance, lightthefusepodcast.com. And if you're looking to follow us on social media, uh, it's lightthefusepod on Instagram and Twitter. And also, Charles, if people want to follow us, I am Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt. You are Charles Hood, but with zeros instead of O's in your last name. So you know, follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well. We, we're always posting stuff there. And, yeah, be sure to to come back because, you know, every Tuesday we have a new episode, Charles. And for a few weeks, I think we're getting bonus episodes. Too, yeah, I right? think we're going to um, get a lot of episodes. Very A lot of episodes. <laughs> Tuesdays, guaranteed. Everything else, gravy. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, 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 you'll hear from us again is what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean, Charles? Come back for the gravy. Come back for the gravy. And that's it. And just remember, like we said, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1 in theaters right now exclusively. Find the biggest, loudest theater you can and just go on the, the ride of a lifetime. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. 